Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Good to have you with us today. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is a general look at production and IT-related topics where we answer your questions. So please get your questions in if you have anything. Uh, obviously, uh, we are all this week concentrating on what's happening on at the National Association of Broadcasters show in Las Vegas. Uh, second hour, we typically have a deeper dive into a topic. Today is audio day, typically, uh, but it's also our third day of NAB uh looking at NAB. We're not doing floor coverage. We're not going remotely out to the show floor as we did the last two days, but we will be definitely discussing what's been presented there, what people are seeing online is coming out of NAB. So if you have questions about any of those things, this is a great day for them. Submit your questions. And as always, don't just submit them, but vote them up. Let us know what you're most interested in learning about or having the panel talk about. We have an August panel of people who have all sorts of credentials in the production area. And uh, I, I just wanted to take one moment to thank our field teams. Man, what a what a fabulous yeoman's job of going through uh, NAB through the halls and bringing us kind of an NAB experience virtually. Uh, Javier Alfaro, Phil, Felipe Bias, George Kennedy, Jeffrey Powers, TJ Heideman, Guy Cochran. I hope I'm not leaving anybody else out. I may be. Oh, Alex was there at the tail, well, not on the main show, but he was he actually was there at the tail end in after hours. And for those of you who don't know about After Hours, that is our 24-7 service that kind of runs behind the scenes and is always open for people asking questions about stuff. So there was not only all the coverage we did from the show for here on the main floor, main show, there was a ton of stuff done in After Hours, ton of discussions, and even more wandering around the show there. Uh, so today... Uh, audio day, so entertaining your audio questions, but also your general production questions. All right, I've been talking too much. Let's go, Courtney. What is our first question of the day? Oh, thank you, Bill. Let me talk some more to you. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida has a question. He says, is the NAB team planning to visit the Telestream booth? Curious about the Zoom Wirecast development. You know, this one of the things, it, it, there, I was not surprised that the the teams who were there covering the show would kind of be in one area and right. <laughs> we had two or sometimes three teams working the show and once they were in an area when you look around nab it is so visually rich you go oh i want to see that and i want to see that and i want to and you might have been planning on spending uh half an hour there <laughs> but it's really easy to wake up you know three hours later after you arrive in that i haven't gone anywhere it's lunchtime there's just a lot of targets of opportunity so uh I'm sure we didn't, get, I, I know for a fact, we didn't get to everything that I wanted to see. We didn't get to everything that everyone on the panel here wanted to see. Um, we did as much as we could and some things were probably left out, but that's just the way NAB is. I've gone to whole uh, shows for all four days in the old days, uh, starting on Monday and going through the tail end on, on Thursday and had only 40 or 50% of my go see list taken care of. Courtney, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, they, uh, what you might do is uh, pop over into after hours and uh, check with Greg there to have them ping them if they haven't left the show yet. And I think they are still there putting together some video packages to uh, release as YouTube shorts uh, later on that are going to be edited and produced uh, to po be posted there. So uh, pop over in after hours and inquire there if they still have communication with the floor crews and if they're still producing uh, 
uh, some more videos that'll be on our YouTube channel. Yeah, it's a perfect, perfect suggestion. So yeah, it, it may be sort of over in terms of our live inserts every day, but it's not over in terms of a lot of people there who might be able to help you out. Let's go on to the next question. All right. Uh, next up from uh, Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin. He says, what was the primary transport tech for last night's HDR live view broadcast test? Bonded cellular, venue Wi-Fi, a combination? I didn't observe a single compromise in a very high bandwidth stream. Yes, these were we were using the LiveU LU800s, which bond eight cellular um, devices, uh, two Wi-Fi's, and also have an Ethernet port. Um, that that's the unit we were using. LiveU was very nice to provide us with. A, a, well, I think they provided us with one, and Jeff Keithley might have had one. I don't know, but we were using two. Uh, LiveU 800s, and they did really yeoman service there. I will also say that NAB is one of the most difficult environments traditionally to get any kind of uh, RF or cellular signal out of. Uh, there were 65,000 or so people. At the height of NAB, it was 100 and, 140, 150,000 uh, people. And it's just so congested in terms of RF, particularly with all the people demoing stuff on the show floor as well, and so much international news coverage instance that it's a hard place to do wireless. And the fact that the HDR live view broadcast, um, oh, you're talking about specifically the HDR live view broadcast test. I was thinking about the regular eight, uh, 800 views, but I think it was one of those 800 views that did the HDR test that Alex conducted kind of after the main broadcast show was over. I watched part of that and it looked good. It looked like we got a very good HDR signal out of there, uh, but it is bonded cellular uh, with Wi-Fi backup. So I don't know exactly which pathway they were using, but I think that's what was happening. Let's sneak off to the next question. Okay, next up is from uh, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. He says, are there any interesting new offerings from new tech chris is going to help there. us out yeah chris fenwick yeah i swung by the new tech booth and they have a new tricaster pro they call it and it's actually a ross switcher with a tricaster sticker on it so it's a uh, guaranteed to be more reliable and crash much less it's <laughs> all right new tech's been around a long time yeah you know, that's just boy i remember being at nab when play the original new tech company said We've got this thing, and uh, John, John says it's called the Quadcaster. The Quadcaster. Well, now, why is that, John? It's try. more than try. Quad. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's better than it's one more. Caster. It's, it's one more than a TriCaster. Then we'll go to the Pentacaster and the. No, I, I mean, I will. I will say honestly, a, a, a lot of gear just gets a bad reputation. You know, uh, the, uh, the OBS on the Macintosh, everybody says you can't use OBS on a Mac. I, my picture goes through OBS on a Mac every single day. I use it all the time so that I can switch between my screens and whatnot. So some stuff is just fun to poke, poke holes at and poke fun of. Uh, but yeah, the TriCaster... You know, I actually think you're bringing up a, a, a larger problem that we have, and I've seen this over and over again, which is on the net early, somebody would pop up and go, yeah, I had trouble having to do this. I don't think it does this very well. And the next thing you know, there's a thread about it, and people are saying, does it really not do this very well? And then it just starts spreading and spreading. And suddenly a piece of gear gets reputation for not being a good piece of gear. 
When in fact, it is a good piece of gear. It just has... Or it does some things well, but you tried to make it do something it wasn't designed to do. Absolutely. And, and the problem is actually worse than that, Bill, because what happens is, uh, let, let's take a sandwich. Somebody says, I went to the sandwich shop. The bread was stale. And then somebody else says, yes, and the pickles were soggy. And then all of a sudden, the thread splinters, and it becomes a discussion on the best way to grow <laughs> slice and serve pickles. That's right. How much and, garlic is in your pickle? I mean, oh, it's I way mean, too much People garlic. are horrible at communicating. They're <laughs> horrible at communicating. And, and so often, somebody will ask a question, and then the answer goes broop, off the other direction. And uh, and the interviewer interviewers need to be better at saying that's all very interesting. But can now you now can you answer my actual question? Yeah, you know, and and people are afraid to do that because you know we're worried about oh I don't want to offend this guy. It's like no, you have a job. You have to. This is your job is to manage this conversation. Yeah, I also think there's another factor at work, and I've noticed this on a lot of subjects, not just tech things, but. A new thing comes out and a bunch of people love it. So everybody starts going, yeah, they try it. It is a good product. It starts building this, this mass of people who say, this thing is really good. This thing is really good. Well, if everybody is saying it's really good, how do you stand out? Ah, but it has a flaw. It's not everybody's saying it's good, but look at, I figured out it's got this thing that doesn't work right. And you can kind of separate yourself. And I think a lot of people like to do that. Um, let me tell you that. That's a possibility. Fails. The other problem is what I call buyer bias. I just spent all this money on something, and I don't want to admit that I made a bad purchase. Yeah. So I'm yeah. just going to talk about the stuff that I like. Yeah. Courtney, you have thoughts on it? Yeah, that's why there's bug bounties out there for uh, people to find bugs in the new equipment, you know, because, hey, the sooner they find them, the sooner they can squash them. One thing I want to know is... Uh, uh, Chris is Kiki Stockhammer still in there? Uh, given the demos ah, speaking of play, I actually didn't go to the new tech. Oh, I, would, oh, I don't know no. if you noticed this, but there actually isn't a a TriCaster Pro, and they did not actually. I was lying. That everything was lying, and I apologize. Well, they used to have a little, a little uh, like a, a a small car. Uh, like a mini SUV out parked out in front of the South Hall all the time with a TriCaster in as their mobile video gathering uh, a field unit. And I, I was wondering if since the South Hall wasn't open anymore, I wonder if they still had that showing it. And I wonder how they're doing pushing NDI because they're making a lot of progress through a lot of other manufacturers out there to incorporate NDI, especially the PTZ areas and so on. So I'm wondering we if We sure hear it talked about here on the show a ton. It seems like one of the biggest enabling technologies out there. And and we mentioned Kiki Stockhammer. Uh, there was, there's a thing about booth presentation. I, I don't think it's as prevalent as it used to be, but you'd find a really polished, wonderful presenter. And Kiki was one of those. Uh, and they attract their own group uh, there. We used to see the demo people. And boy, I used to think that the young men and young women, they typically tend to be young, somewhere under 40. And they're very polished and very presentable. And they really draw your eye. And I always thought these are probably being sourced from somewhere. And yet they're being given us a, a slot where they have to present very technical stuff. So they probably, like actors and actresses, had to 
to memorize these long scripts. You know, I'm the demo person for the brand new Sony, blah, 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 blah. It is very technical. They usually had a big script. They might be on a stage with, with even inside the Sony booth, 20 or 30 chairs. And they had to present this information over and over and over. Booth demoing is its own art. And boy, I, I stand in awe of some of the people who do it really, really well. I worked very closely with Kiki for about four years. We toured all over the U.S. and in Europe, doing six or seven shows a year. And Kiki is uh, otherworldly smart. She's super bright. She doesn't doesn't surprise me at all. And, wasn't and, she one of the original her, uh, uh, owners of Play? Wasn't she involved in the company? Yes, yeah, she was. She was uh, one of the original. I don't know that she was an owner i think she probably was but she was sure. definitely one of the first six people or something like that and of course you know she was you know the kiki wipe of the video toaster you know right uh, that's right yeah the late and, wipe. and she got started in her i think in her early 20s uh but not only is she an amazing demo artist uh can think on her feet like nobody's business we used to do a thing where we would um we would. I, I'm only vamping here because we have no questions. Uh, uh, <laughs> we used to do a thing on the last ahead. day of NAB where we would slip her a list of ten absurd words to work into her demo. Really? And we were like, you know, keyword bingo. Um, and then uh, there was another time where we were doing a demo where she had a. She was demoing the the tr the, the play product, the TriCaster, I think, or no, not TriCaster, but Trinity. It was called. They were demoing, she was demoing that, and I was switching a show using it. And there were, this is why I don't believe demos, ever. She would be demoing, and I could watch on the screen and see that her demo was crashing. <laughs> that her machine was crashing. I would then cut off of her screen and go to my computer and continue to do her demo for her while she was rebooting her machine live on stage, when her machine was back up, I would switch back to her, and we just had little eye signals like, "Hey, I could use a little help here," you know, because I was actually sitting in the audience, not backstage, switching the show. That's why I don't. I never believe demos. I it's don't. The show must go on thing. You got a bunch of people there. They want the information. Yeah. Saying it's crashed. You everybody has to sit and twiddle their thumbs. Make a it phone was a, call. It was an honor that. to work with her. She's super smart. There are some really good people. I remember Tim Wilson was a, a friend of mine, and he used to do demos for who was it? Was it uh, Adobe or Avid or uh, anyway? Tim was in that same category. Just a fine demo artist, and I got to know him well enough to know that he put in hundreds of hours in front of every one of those NAB stretches where he had to demo it. So I'm just giving out a, a, a salute to the really dedicated demo artists who put this information out at places like NAB, uh, some of whom are, as Chris has indicated about Ms. Stockhammer, how, you know, great technologists on their own. Others are hired guns who come in to present highly technical information in a, in a very listenable and watchable format. They're all amazing in my book. All right, we've, been, we've, we've pushed this around for a while. Let's uh, go on to the next question. 
Next one coming in from Andrew Cheney uh, out in uh, Wales. It says Cheney from Wales, UK here. We are a longtime user of Blackmagic Design Devices from the original TV studio onwards. The ATM SDI Extreme ISO has a noticeable high-frequency hum on mic one and two inputs when connecting a mini jack to XLR input, as anyone noticed. Courtney, do you want to start us off and Chris will help? I don't have the SDI input one, but and it depends on what kind of signal you're feeding into that XLR input. Are you feeding a dynamic microphone? If so, you got to crank the level up almost all the way, and you're going to hear probably a lot of high-frequency hum. And with SDI inputs, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some crosstalk between any of those SDI buses and the audio. Um, so... I don't know what your solution is. Make sure that your cable, your mini plug to XLR is wired correctly. And so you're trying to wedge a balanced line in, over that XLR into an unbalanced stereo input. If you have that in line input, set the line input on the ATEM. So you might go in and make sure that the, uh, the shield on the XLRs is connected to the right pin. Chris, uh, to unbalance that. I'm sorry. I thought you were done, Courtney. My, sorry. My bad. I was just waning. That's all right. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, Cheney. I, I think uh, what Courtney alluded to is, you know, we're so used to doing so much stuff uh, with analog that the problem you're talking about sounds like a, a bad cable uh, power next to your uh, audio. It could be a lot of analog problems. I think as as more and more things go digital, we forget our analog troubleshooting uh, techniques. I will say this also, uh, name drop moment here. Uh, I got to chat with Grant Petty at the show, and uh, I basically all I wanted to do is thank him for all the work that they do to do their um, their live, you know, their demos, you know, when he uh, does new product announcements. And he was he was super fun to chat with. He's like, oh yeah, those those are really hard. I go, you should do more of them. And he says, well, I can't. I still have to run the company, and they take, they take me a lot of time. He also kind of admitted to the fact that um, when they are, this is kind of off record, but when they're producing those videos, like he says, it's really chaotic because you know we make the products, we don't necessarily use them, <laughs> and so it's kind of it's kind of uh, chaos when they're when they're putting the, the, the those shows together. But he he had just been talking to somebody else. And and admitted that you know sometimes you can run you know a hundred or a thousand or something and just one of them's bad. So ask around, see if other people have the same problem. Do your analog testing, you know, troubleshooting, and it might be that you just have a bad unit that you have to contact your uh, dealer or whatever. You, what you mean, Grant Petty isn't spending six hours a day cutting on an ATEM ISO? I'm shocked. No, but he did he did <laughs> allude to the fact that he spends an awful. He says he takes tons of time to do those he admitted that on the floor behind him was absolute chaos there's cables and you're stepping on things and he looks he has so all these neat little, and organized he has all these little clips <laughs> on the back of, edge of the counter where he clips and color codes all the cables that he's supposed to pull out and he says he rehearses them at home you know the the stuff that steps he wants to do and i told him i said yeah but what percentage of ceos billionaires uh can do that stuff, you know, live unplugging drive. And I just told him, I said, it's super impressive. And I, I love the, and, and he was super, thank he, he seemed to be, he was just an acting, 
uh, super thankful, you know, for the for the response. I think I think a lot of times when you show up at an event like that, it's like, oh, I want. And literally, the guy the guy who was talking for me, he had brought in his thing. He goes, yeah, this thing's not working. And he's like, go talk to that guy. You know, I mean, I'm yeah. just the CEO. Crad will do your tech support too if you show up with a bad bad camera. Courtney, more thoughts. Uh, yeah, you might try uh, grounding the uh, shield on the connector to the uh, case of the ATEM. That might work. And also, if you can find some clip-on ferrite cores, you know, those little ferrite beads, not beads, but usually they're barrel-shaped that you can clip over a cable. Clip that over your power cables, because a lot of times switching power supplies, and I would think that the power supply that comes with the ATEM would be filtered, have one of these on it. So put one of those over the uh, DC input cable that plugs the power into the uh, into the ATEM because sometimes high frequency from those switching power supplies can leak in and that uh, ferrite uh, barrel will help filter out some of that high frequency noise. But your problem is probably the wiring and that adapter cable. If it wasn't designed to uh, work with the ATEM, maybe it's not wired correctly. Yeah, I, I had the same thing. I was just rereading the question to make sure that we'd come as close as we could. And so high frequency and hum often don't go together. Uh, so I'm. it's a question as to what it is. I think everybody's been talking about things that are my suspicion too, some sort of inducted noise that's getting into that unbalanced mini pin audio input. And we're all we're a little surprised about uh, the fact that they just use those 3.5 millimeter unbalanced jacks for a thing that was production kind of oriented, but I guess it's just a matter of the real estate they had available on the back of the unit for plugging audio in. Um, but it's unbalanced and unbalanced audio was always a potential for getting noise and other stuff. Marty, you have a final comment before we move on? Yeah, I, I completely agree with, with all the advice here. It, it you know, uh, when you're interfacing, again, we don't know what you're plugging in, right? So whether it's a microphone or a mixer, and but either way, you know, the XLR is a balanced output. So, and, and the three and a half millimeter is an unbalanced input in stereo. So plus minus and ground on one end, left, right, and ground on the other end. Make sure that you're not that the three and a half millimeter is is wired first for stereo and not for balanced. Um, also, the high frequency hum could be because the wire is on your desk near a power supply that can be radiating and and that'll be picking up. Um, so just look at your wiring, <clears throat> make sure that your your pinouts are correct. And if you if you're not real familiar with what the pinouts are, then come uh, you know hop on to after hours with some specific information you can show us what you have we can talk you through it yeah and last but not least if you're converting an unbalanced signal which you might be doing with the xlr input to an unbalanced make that as short as possible because the longer the cable on the unbalanced leg of that the more it acts like an antenna for picking up noise so keep things as short as possible if they're not balanced all right let's move on that was fun yeah and also remember if it's un unbalanced going into the xlr it's unbalanced all the way down that xlr cable as well Absolutely unless you're true. going into a transformer to go to unbalanced at the end of the uh, converter to the mini plug next question comes in from mike potter in hanover germany he says does uh the roadcast uh 
Uh, does the Rodecaster have an inbuilt receiver for the Rode Wireless Go system recently activated by a firmware update? Does the same hold true for the new Rode Pro X, the mini one? The Chris, have you been, Chris, have you been looking into this? Uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, I think it's important to know, to remember that the uh, the firmware update is is on the Rode Go. And I don't think that there's anything that you could do to up to upgrade the firmware on the Rode Go for it to magically reach into the uh, the Rodecaster Pro X, whatever it's called. And I tell you, they got a bunch of these things. But I will tell you this, that in regards to the wireless Go, this is my pick of the show. This is best of show. They have this little charger case now. You plug the receiver and the two mics in it. And the case alone, it works kind of like your AirPods. The case alone can charge these things three times throughout the day. That's yeah, that's cool. very useful. And you're right. Uh, that is reminds me of I don't AirPods. know if the Rodecaster has the ability to receive uh, the, the wireless Go. Also, because um, I actually have the wireless Go, because I'm, so I'm a little excited about it. Um, buy the, the Thunderbolt cable that they have for it. Because you could take the receiver and plug it right into your phone, and you don't even have to use a fancy camera. You can just use the iPhone camera, and as long as you hit all the right buttons on the receiver, it'll put each mic in in a channel. So you get your two people isolated on on their own channel. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to do a little post on it because it sounds silly, but uh, super cool. Fully digital. Oh, sorry. Courtney? Yeah, you think I think that uh, Road Central software has to be run to do that, and I think there is an update to the uh, Roadcaster Pro, and I think what they're doing here because both of those mics are two point four uh, gigahertz, which is the same area as Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, as you know, the same frequency band, and the radios for the Bluetooth that's built into the Roadcaster Pro uh, already tunes that, and there's a, already a two point four gigahertz antenna in there. So they probably just reprogrammed it to use either either they reprogrammed the uh, wireless goes to uh, transmit over Bluetooth's frequency or use the Bluetooth protocol, or they just uh, had it changed to a, their Wi-Fi protocol in the Broadcaster Pro, uh, or the uh, Bluetooth radio has been switched to wireless reception for the Broadcaster Go. And by the way, the DJI. Always came with one of those cases, Chris. It, you don't have to pay yeah, extra for whatever. it. So here's the it deal. Charges. <laughs> I did find the sentence in the oh, okay. Roadcaster 2 wireless microphone connectivity paragraph, including the wireless Go 2. So I was totally wrong, but still the case. It's totally cool. All right. We're moving on to the next question. Okay. From uh, Auckland, New Zealand, Peter Moore asks Any recommendations? For a company that does custom logos or colors, et cetera, for mic windshields, where are their companies at the NAB offering this? Uh, a cursory search comes up with this so you can know what my question is asking. And he has a link in there. Yeah, there's lots of them. Uh, but Marty, take us through some. Well, I, I can't give you any uh, specific manufacturers that are at the NAB show, but I did a search for um, windscreen microphone printing and came up with a whole bunch of of companies that will do this for you. Um, 
Some of them are in the U.S., many of them. This seems to be very popular in Europe for, for news organizations, much more than in the U.S., um, but they are out there and they're pretty easy to find. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did a quick search on Google. The term you're looking for is Mike Flags. So just pop Mike Flags into Google. You'll find tons of vendors for them. Uh, I used to get most of mine from Marker Tech, but apparently this is a big cottage industry out there, and you can get these turned around. If you want something really custom and really nice, they can be a bit pricey. I was seeing $50 a flag, but they will do color imprint on them and turn them around and ship them to you in a couple of days. If you want something really nice, you can get them for 15, 20 bucks, pretty much from a lot of vendors out there. Courtney? Well, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Marnie. Go ahead, Marnie. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to say a mic flag is typically something that would be a plastic box or, or a thing that you would slide the microphone into. And that would be positioned underneath the microphone head. Yeah. Um, but a windshield, a windscreen is something right. you would put on, say, a shotgun microphone or a ball microphone. That is, there's a foam screen around it. And those can be colored and printed on as well. Oh, you're talking right. about about pop filters. All right. Yeah, when 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 the when, thing, when the, the thing okay. the wind the, the foam thing that's on that uh, four sixteen four sixteen in front of me. Yeah, yeah. for those <laughs> right. of you, I probably can't see it because it's against and my it's, shirt. But this thing. it's the same it's the same companies that do the mic flags also print the uh, do the custom printing on the windshields or make custom printed windshields for a variety of microphones. I've seen. Okay, them my bad. Sorry about that. Online, I what I. What I do want to know is is kind of related to this is if you watch the morning news shows, the network news shows, uh, the female hosts on there always have these outrageously bright yellow or orange or red or blue outfits on. And always the color of their lavalier mic always matches their outfit. And I'm wondering, do they have this whole rainbow of colors for the wireless mics for those people that are custom painted and custom colored, or is there some kind of overlay or cap that goes on top? That'd be interesting. I'd love <laughs> Have to you get seen any of that, Marty? I don't know. Love to get in the yeah, NBC are, prop there shop. There are microphones uh, that are actually paintable. I think you, there's a you know certain kind of paint that you want to use, uh, but they are paintable and uh, and but some of them do come in colors, uh, limited range of colors because you know black. Oh white, yes, gray, I've seen them in black, white, and flesh colored, but in flesh colored and gray, but gray, the brighter so. colors, yeah, you, you'd have yeah. to paint the microphones. What if you could go to the cosmetics counter and look at some of the nail polish? <laughs> Just do there it you yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of reds uh, available. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. All right. Next question comes in from uh, Chatbacks, Charbacks, excuse me, in Hong Kong. Uh, have you guys checked out the Yolobox Pro, an Android based 4 HDMI input switcher for live streaming? Jesse Kester is going to help us out here. Jesse? I have been keeping an eye on the YOLO box since it was first announced, and I would really like to get excited about it, but they just have so many like little twitchy things about how they present themselves online. So your question is about the four HDMI inputs on the YOLO box Pro. We're going to jump over to their website, and they do have four HDMIs, but only three are in, one is an HDMI out. And it might seem like um, you made the mistake on, on understanding that, but their, their materials are constantly full of errors, their, their promotional materials. 
So like when they first launched, they said it has two USB inputs. The second USB input was only able to be used for power. So they're, they're always doing these little like up sales that are not technically not untrue, technically maybe not a lie, but always feel like a very disingenuous. Like you can plug in three HDMIs, but they're bragging that you can switch up to eight sources. They have copy like premium free features are free. So what does, what does that mean? Um, if the premium features are free live streamed events, 1000 K plus, is that a thousand thousand? Is it 1000? So I, I want to get behind YOLO live, but there's this like, um, kind of the, this, uh, the odor of, of, um, amateur carnival barking going on, on all of their materials. That's interesting. Courtney. And uh, Tarbax, the person asking the question, is in Hong Kong, so maybe he he speaks and reads uh, Chinese better, and may be able to uh, read their original their original instruction manual a lot better than those of us that can't read Chinese. Uh, and if you're looking for, uh, there's Aaron Parecki has the yellow box and has done a lot of uh, a lot of demos and uh, instructional videos on the use of that product. So maybe he's reviewed that uh, four HDMI or four input, multi-input uh, uh, switcher, which has its built-in monitor and so on. So look on Aaron Parecki's website and see if he's got a review of it. That's a place where I'd look. Maybe there's not a proper character for three pretending to be four in the translation. I, I, we've all run across this. Uh, you know, Is it the translation or is it the actual functions and... Uh, who knows? Well, one's been endemic of the company since pretty much day one of this round everything up. <laughs> there you go. And you know, Jesse, I found a solution for that. I've what I've done is I've taken those uh, those products that come from China and have been machine translated into English. Uh, so it's very bad, almost un understandable English. I've taken that that copy, OCR'd it with a with my printer. Then drop that text into chat GPT and type rewrite colon and drop the text in and it writes it in perfect English. It's amazing. It's really understandable. And it cleans up all those crazy, uh, you know, wrong word choices that the uh, earlier machine language translation did. So we haven't quite gotten to the new uh, AI generated uh, translations yet. Well, but it's great to have more tools that will help us. Let's go on to the next question. Next one comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, Chris, you mentioned that the new TriCaster is a Ross switcher with new tech branding. I don't see anything on Ross's website. Is this a new partnership between the companies? Chris? I'm going to, I'm going to warn you, Douglas. A lot of times I'm just joking about stuff. It's not real. That was sarcasm. I apologize to anybody who thought uh, what I was saying was a real product. It was not just being sarcastic. Okay. <laughs> Why is your now with AI badge coming up? I am is also that, now with AI. Is that Chris GPT? <laughs> Interesting. All right, let's move on to the next one. Sorry, Sorry to disappoint you, Douglas. All right, our friend Paul Wallace down in Austin, Texas, has a question. He says, in what way does our one... Uh, use artificial intelligence to create realistic and expressive synthetic characters for video production. And Hour One is uh, an AI platform at hour1.ai, apparently for generating video from text prompts. 
I don't think any of us have a single clue. I have never heard of them, and I'm not seeing any nodding happening on the panel here. It sounds interesting. Uh, it also sounds like synthetic characters is a very difficult thing to do. We've been watching uh, the folks uh, who are are really good, like the Unreal Engine folks, at doing artificial characters, and we realize how complicated it is to to make that actually appear anything close to realistic. Courtney, what do you got to say about this? I think there's different classes of AI-generated uh, video uh, out there, and some of it generate video from scratch, just from a dis- just from a uh, description, the text prompt, you know, like, uh, show me a teddy bear walking down the street, and it will generate enough multiple frames. And the current level of, of uh, image generation from text doesn't quite get that very, very well. And it, it will, you know, you'll see as the little bear is walking, one of its legs will flip upside down so that the foot is in the hip and the hip is in the foot. And uh, so it doesn't really get it consistently from frame to frame to frame to frame. Now, there are other uh, AI generators that are using avatars, previously created avatars to map the facial expressions on uh, using uh, descriptions of, uh, uh, of anger or fear, or things like that. So maybe that's what this particular place does. I haven't gone to look at that uh, place yet, but maybe uh, maybe they're using pre, predefined uh, uh avatars, caricatures, and then applying uh, uh, expressions to them on the fly. Marty, maybe syncing up audio to them as well. Sorry, Marty? Yeah, so I'm just browsing through the website here, and it's it's kind of interesting. You get to you get to choose the the human humanoid character that you want to use, and it looks like a waste up image. Um, and then based on the text prompts that you put in or the script that you put in, this humanoid thing, uh, image speaks your text and, and appears to do some body language and hand gestures. Um, and I'm seeing some, I'm seeing a quote from president of NBC Universal talking about the collaboration between Universal DreamWorks Animation Cameo and Hour One, uh, bridging together innovation to do what they're doing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's intriguing, I gotta say. Uh, something something to something to try and see how well it works if you if you want to do a video like an instructional video or a promotional video and you don't have a good background or camera or microphone or you're don't feel you are adept enough at your on-camera presence and you want something somebody else to do it for you it might be an interesting thing to try out courtney your thoughts yeah, I just thought uh, this would be great for these small market television stations that can't afford uh, news anchors uh, to do a nightly newscast. They can rip the uh, headlines from the Associated Press, feed it into this AI newscaster, and generate their own little newscast every night with very little effort. Uh, even uh, pull some of the videos that they find uh, available on the, the various press sources. Uh, so you could put together a newscast. So all you anchors out there in Palakazula, you know, Mississippi, better be watching out because they're going to be replaced by an avatar. You know, this reminds me. 
So yeah, this reminds me, I was just in a discussion online about um, there, there's a thing that was happening. I saw a news story and here's the thing. A lot of clients in my past have said, I really love this talent. Not only are they extraordinary, but they are a bit ethnically ambiguous. And what they are saying is that maybe uh, the community around them, which may skew one direction. I mean, let's say it's a local or a small regional thing, and there are a lot of people of Asian descent in there, and they want their, their on-screen talent or their spokesperson to reflect the community around them. So they're happy to find people who are in that category. And in my experience, that made more opportunity for the talent who had those ethnicities to find work because they were reflecting the community around them. Now we're talking about AI being able to create these avatars. And the thing that I saw yesterday was a little bit of a pushback from uh, some of the ethnic communities and saying, hey, it was really hard for us to find jobs anyway. And now you're saying you can just make an avatar that looks like my ethnicity and send that up. And I'm also not going to get the job as a talent because of that. It's really interesting, all these little sub- ripples that are happening because of what is possible in terms of creating artificially crafted presences that for the best reasons, you know, I want our, our spokesperson to look like the community that's surrounding them, but boy, all of a sudden they're stopped. They're not getting calls anymore. And it's just one more tiny little fraction of how these changes may be impacting certain workers in, in the field. It's, it's a fascinating thing we're going to be going through over the next couple of years. Uh, next couple of decades. Next question. Next one comes in from uh, Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. He says, I'm enjoying the NAB Office Hours live coverage. When I have attended the show, I often observe uh, common new tech pushed from many vendors, such as NDI one year. Do we see a common industry tech we think we'll see coming out of the show this year? Let's start with Courtney. Courtney, what do you think? I did the the one thing I see this year is every everybody's now has the little tag with now with AI, uh, artificial intelligence is now being applied to all the editing platforms and a lot of the uh, color correction platforms and uh, the uh, speech to text generation. Mostly in editing, you're seeing this, but you're also going to be seeing it in cameras for uh, calculating, uh, you know, exposure and depth of field and. Uh, helping you with your lighting, et cetera, et cetera. I remember in, in 2017, the buzzword was it was all 3D. There was 3D camera packages to mount two cameras and beam splitters and uh, interocular distance generators and 3D displays and 3D projection uh, and all of that. Uh, and then the next year, nobody had 3D. So who knows? Next year, maybe AI will only be a a figment of our imagination, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of weight behind it. Marty, your thoughts? Well, I noticed uh, quite a bit uh, of new product that will cross-convert between NDI and other platforms such as SDI uh, and Dante, for example. I've seen, uh, starting to see NDI's uh, beginning to compete in multi-channel audio space. Um, we saw a number of new products for Atmos audio monitoring and conversion. So um, interfaces, 
computer interfaces that will split out the audio to all your different loudspeakers uh, with different protocols and you know different types of Atmos. Um, what else do we see? We saw some additional Dante support uh, coming out and um, uh, a support for Dante video as well. Um, what else do we see? A number of things. We saw a bunch of uh, lower cost wireless microphones come out. We saw a lot of um, new support, new ways of monitoring what for wireless microphone spectrum usage, uh, for ensuring clean audio. Um, the ability for, again, in wireless microphones uh, to communicate and control transmitters from the receiver end. Yeah, that, that feedback loop of being able to determine things like mute status and uh, altering levels remotely, I, I think that'd be hugely powerful. I can't tell you the number of times I wish I could go change a setting on something on the stage that was attached to someone's belt pack without having to actually run out there and toss up the back of their jacket and say, excuse me, while I rummage around and change the setting on your microphone. Uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about more of that, uh, more about that in about 15 minutes, right? There you go. That's <laughs> right. Our second hour uh, audio things from NAB. So stay tuned for that. Let's get to the next question. Coming in from uh, Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. He says, um, in the ATEM Mini, could Blackmagic use the 3.5 millimeter as input, as a balanced input? Uh, what would be the drawback? Courtney? Well, the drawback would be that it's wired for stereo currently if used as a line input. And so you couldn't use it as a balanced input and for a left-right stereo input at the same time easily without some mechanical switching going on inside there. Uh, so that would be one problem. And that they're already using that uh, 3.5 millimeter uh, tip ring sleeve input uh, for both stereo left right input as line level input and as a uh unbalanced microphone input with bias power for uh condenser microphones for uh, electret condenser microphones so if you have a little small lavalier that's an electret condenser it can provide uh, enough uh five volts of, of bias power for that particular electret condenser so when you switch it to mic level and when you switch it between mic and line it also changes the input level so having a third way to, to reconfigure that input to a, a single balanced line instead of a stereo input might be a little bit problematic. Maybe Marty has a way to do it or an external box you might be able to do it with. I think Marty's kind of agreeing with you. Marty, what are your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. Now, with, with everything that they're doing with that, with that input already, um, the circuitry inside is just not set up for balanced inputs. Uh, the best thing you could do, you can get a, an interface, an external box or adapter um, that will accept uh, balanced, and it's a balanced to unbalanced converter. And so, you know, one of the other differences is the impedance uh, for these things. So a balanced input has a fairly uh, a high impedance on both of the plus and minus pins. So balance is plus, minus, and ground. Uh, <clears throat> whereas uh, an unbalanced input uh, is left, right, and ground, uh, and also at a high impedance. So you'd have to, you can change that. You can convert 
that with a transformer, you can con convert that with an active uh, a, a set of electronics. Um, but one way or another, you would have to use an external device to make that conversion. Yeah. Courtney, last stop. Yeah, there's a couple of ways uh, to go with that. The, the easiest way is to get something like a Beach Tech or, or one of the people that make the boxes to interface to a DSLR that have uh, two microphone level inputs that are balanced and even 48 volt phantom. And their output is designed to plug into the mini mic jack on mini DSLRs. So then you'd put it in micro, you'd put your ATEM in microphone mode and uh, feed it in that way. And that way you could get your higher quality condensers. Uh, into a box like that, or just use an external mixer. Like uh, uh, there's a lot of mini mixers here. Let's see if I can grab one within reach. Something like this that has uh, uh, multiple inputs and uh, and single outputs and go into the line input in stereo. So just take the output of this into that, uh, into that mini jack with left and right uh, and uh, at, at uh, unbalanced line level. Uh, minus 10 dB, and you should be good to go. It'll give you a little more quality uh, if, if you keep the cable short between the little mixer and the ATEM, and then you can run balanced cables into the mixer. Let's move on to the next question. Coming in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are the key metrics and methods that TSV Analytics uses to measure and optimize viewer engagement and retention with machine learning? I don't, I'm not familiar with TSV analytics. I will say that um, measuring viewer engagement and retention is a science that's been around for a long time. You know, th there was tons of that in just even in the old uh, Nielsen system of doing um, surveys of people's media watching habits. It is a pretty well understood science at that end of it. Now, um, Machine learning, uh, you know, I would imagine you'll start with those original uh, statistics and just move them kind of into the modern era and have machine learning uh, interpret them. But Courtney, do you have any uh, different thoughts on it? Well, I think there's several ways that these things, these analytics operate. They look at engagement and how long you click on it and how long you stay with it and how many people bail out after, you know, how long. And how many people stay uh, all the way to the end watching a commercial with, or something without switching? Uh, so you can get all of those uh, metrics back from your viewer as long as they have their privacy settings set on to share that information back up the line. Uh, one thing that I did find out a friend, a uh, lady friend of mine said, Oh, I got this great new job. And I work at home and uh, they pay in crypto. And I went, uh Oh, red flag. Um, they all you have to do is watch commercials and uh you know you get paid you don't really have to watch them you just have to have them on and playing and so this is what they're doing now there's companies out there that are gaming these uh uh tsv analytics companies out there by paying thousands of people and having them recruit other thousands of people for uh, a little uh stipend for every commercial they uh tune in and watch on their they don't have to watch it but just play through on their computer. They're not watching it. They're doing something else. So uh, I wouldn't trust too much of that analytics because it is being gamed in a big way. And you can probably buy those clicks and buy that engagement online from these nefarious companies. I will say at the other end of the spectrum, there are companies that run legitimately 
controlled focus groups. They'll bring in a group of people and literally put them in a controlled environment and do up to and including eyeball tracking to see where you're looking, whether you're paying attention, whether your eyes are on the changing content, whether you've decided it's time to check your cell phone and see if you have messages in or look at the time and can track everything that an that a supposedly engaged audience member might be doing. Uh, th- there's just a variety of levels of measuring what this ephemeral thing is we call engagement. Um, that also has something to do with you know, you're putting something out there for sale. How many of them are sold before you put your messaging out there and how many are sold afterwards? That's kind of the simplest form of measuring audience engagement with a sales circumstance. Courtney, you had a last thought before we move on? Yeah, here's a scary thought. Depending upon, make sure you, you check your privacy preferences in there because uh, I wouldn't put it past some of these companies to turn on your camera and your laptop and, and track your eyeballs to see what you're looking at on the screen while a commercial or a program is playing. So that's certainly doable with AI and uh, be, uh, take a look out to make sure that little LED that lights up next to your built-in camera isn't lit up while you're watching your next commercial because maybe they're tracking you. I was about to say that's, you know, as much as we're annoyed by that little yellow light on our, uh, at least Apple laptops, that's exactly what it's designed to show you. Somebody's tapped in and is watching you watching it. Let's move on to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Brett Bilo in Wisconsin, in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. He says, does the panel have any experience or opinions on the Mackie Big Knob 3 by 2 studio monitor controller? I'm considering an upgrade for my Scarlet 2i2 and have to have more inputs. Chris Henwick. So, um, yeah, Brett, the 2i2 is a kind of a dedicated uh, USB interface. The big knob, is, its kind of primary purpose is to switch between different speakers uh, so you can listen to your big speakers or your near-field near monitors. I just double-checked it. It actually does have a USB, which I didn't realize it had. Um, but the big knob is pretty old. I mean, I think they've been selling that for like 10 or 15 years. And before I ran off and bought one, I would look at, and, and I and I sorry, I don't have any specific suggestions, but I would look for something that's a, a bit newer technology. Um, there might be some features that you're not really thinking about that... Um, uh, might pique your interest or be useful on the near horizon. But the big knob is kind of an old product. I don't know that I would seriously consider buying one. I think I'm in Chris's area here. As a matter of fact, I used to use these Zoom Tac 2s that are kind of in the same shape. It's got one big knob in the center of things. This happens to be a Thunderbolt controller, usually a couple of monitors out for your near-field monitors, a couple of XLR ins for microphones, and then some logic circuitry in there so you can determine I want to uh, handle the level on this set of speakers as opposed to that one. There there are quite a few things. And my Universal Audio Apollo Solo has an, the same kind of idea, one big knob, but then a system system that allows you to control a variety of different things. I love the form factor, uh, but they can get very complex. I know my my Apollo Solo is very complicated under the hood. Marty, your, your thoughts about these? Well, w- one quick second. Oh, yeah, uh, right. Mickey's just telling me that they actually, about four or five years ago, they did update the big knob to add the USB. The original one didn't actually have USB. Now it does. Not sure exactly how it ties in. So I said it was 10 or 15 years old. It's still five years old. Um, 
I'd still look at whatever. It might it might be the best choice for you, but definitely look at newer things. Uh, Marty, 80s. Yeah, and just before the show, Mickey was telling me that Avid updated their uh, Matrix studio uh, monitor controller uh, <clears throat> so to a Matrix 2, and so that might be something to look at, uh, depending on what price point you're looking at. I will say, your I think your uh, instinct is good. I love having this one big knob that I can use for a lot of things, it, it, particularly when doing this show, the fact that I can reach out to my Apollo Solo and tap it, uh, a couple of simple things and change my audio mic level, or if I'm in a session with somebody, change the level of my bridge monitors. It's really convenient. I do like them. Let's go on to the next question. This one comes in from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. He says, can we please filter out and or educate questioners which use the term AI, please? If I, as a coder, write a script or a program based on a tech spec I got, it's using known inputs and expected outputs. Then it's not AI. Courtney? Well, I agree. AI has now become a marketing term. It's like when everybody started putting digital on everything in the... Uh, uh, sales brochures for stuff that wasn't really, yeah, as you can see, yeah, Fenwick now has now with AI on his, on his, <laughs> on his window there. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to think my intelligence is artificial, but unfortunately it's real. <laughs> uh, the, uh, we, we've come across this and it was like, everybody calls them Kleenexes, even if they're not a Kleenex, these terms come into use and all of a sudden everybody starts banding them around. And, uh, now with aloe. <laughs> that doesn't have yeah, anything the, to do with product. If the program or, or device is making decisions on its own without user input, then it's AI. Yeah. Uh, if it's programmed to uh, just make a choice, if this, then this, you know, there's a whole there's there's a whole product out there called if this, then that, that does that specific stuff. It, it bases its function based on what user input is. But if it's operating without the user input and you're just giving it a direction and it's choosing, making all the choices down the line, then I guess it could be considered AI. Yeah, and then you've got the the fine distinction between AI and machine learning, uh, which is a subset of the overall. It, it just gets very complicated in there. Uh, I'm noticing that we don't have a ton of second hour questions, even though we are getting to the top of the hour. So I'm going to keep going with general ones for a minute. Uh, we're probably going to lock off additional questions coming in. I do think we want to talk about all the audio stuff from the floor. So I want to allow ample time. We're not going to run way over as we did yesterday, but... Um, We'll try to handle as many of your questions as we can. So, Courtney, let's get on to the next one. Yeah, this one kind of relates to the last question. Jesse Kester from Glendale says, are we seeing any industry progress toward definitions of what now with AI actually means? It's such a broad claim uh, to be nearly entirely meaningless. Yeah, I think you, well, we just discussed that. And I think that's very true. It is the latest and greatest buzzword uh, and I have to admit, you know, it's kind of earned that. I think we were all absolutely gobsmacked when we saw stuff like Midjourney and suddenly, you know, these fantastic creations that looked like it had taken somebody with tremendous artistic skills to generate. And we learned that that anybody can create those by throwing a bunch of words into uh, a text prompt and putting it in their system. Everybody went, wow. This is truly transformative. And, and in a lot of ways, AI will be truly transformative. But I think the buzz has, like most really transformative technology, 
<laughs> the horses on the buzz have gotten way ahead of the horses on the practicality. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I think Preto can enlighten us on this, but you know, the AI that is real AI is usually based on large language model training and uh, is completely different than uh, what like an algorithmic Google search is, which goes out on the internet. It searches all the same internet information, but Google search re returns clips and pointers to articles uh, with actual text that it found with the keywords from your search contained in it. The AI actually takes all, divides the entire knowledge base that it has searched or that's in its language model, breaks it up into little syllables, portions of words, not even whole words, uh, you know, two-letter, three-letter groups, and it determines what the next word is most likely to be based on statistical analysis of all those little pieces of words out there on the internet. So it is a completely different method and model for generating an answer, and its answers aren't necessarily taken verbatim from anywhere, but it's just uh, creating the words based on the language of choice uh, and in the normal progression of words that are most normally found after one after another. That's how I interpret it. Maybe John can give me more information on how Thankfully, that John works. has raised his hand, so we'll get something from somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about this. John? Courtney's hired. He did a great job explaining exactly how the transformers work, large language models. So you've, you've got ton, AI's been around for 50-plus years now. We, we learned neural networks in college in the late 80s, and then they had a thing called AI Winter, where they had theoretical neural networks back starting in the 50s and 60s, and in the 70s and 80s, AI Winter, because they didn't have the horsepower in order to run these neural networks. And so the, the transformer technology, the breakthrough, came out in a paper in 2017. So it's been out for five years. And, it, and, and exactly how Courtney explained it is exactly how they work. They predict the next word based on 175 GPT-4, 175 billion parameters. They're pre-trained on that model, and they're able to predict the next word uh, in the sentence. And that's exactly how the large, langu large language models work. The image recognition stuff is is a completely different model. So a lot of the stuff now that we're dealing with in production is is AI based upon uh, image um, um, digitization of, of millions of images, which was the AlexNet project back in 2012. All of that stuff have derived from that that process. And then the large language models now have been around since for, for five years. But there's some unbelievable stuff coming ahead so just stay tuned yeah no it's a watershed time jesse you asked the question any more thoughts on drilling down yeah i was thinking more from like a legal perspective how graham crackers need to have graham flour or chocolate candies actually have to be derived from cocoa plants are we seeing any movement any legislative movement toward actually defining what now with ai now with machine learning means uh before a company is legally allowed to put it on their marketing materials or is that a fool's dream well someday it may happen i don't I haven't heard of anybody in congress being as aware of this stuff i'm, I'm sure there are a few scattered congress people who understand the potential implications of all this, but I'm not sure if the copyright people, the first one, Courtney, your thoughts? There are a lot of people right now that are arguing over uh, sentience, whether these AI bots, chatbots are sentient or 
conscious and whether it's, uh, you know, defining sentience and defining consciousness is still argued over. So people really don't know what consciousness is. And so to define something as conscious or a sentient being uh, to take on its own personality and have its own thoughts and uh, dreams <laughs> or nightmares, uh, there are nightmares, uh, you know, is, is another point of uh, discussion. So how you could legally define something as uh, conscious or sentient, uh, that's where the arguments are going to be in court. In court. I'm not even sure I can determine that for people. I know myself on a Friday night in college, there's probably an argument to be made that I wasn't sentient. Uh, let's move to the next question. Yeah. Trying to find intelligence. <laughs> Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas says, what is the live OS production platform from neton.live and how does it enable live streaming, video conferencing and remote collaboration? Um, I've not been on the live OS platform and it looks like we might not have anybody here who uh, has had much experience with it. Um, I do know that a lot of people are moving, a lot of companies and a lot of interest in exactly the kinds of things that we explore every day here and live streaming obviously is a massive part of that. We also talk about video conferencing and remote collaboration every single day on Office Hours. Marty, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is kind of interesting. Well, it's a so it's a private cloud server um, that they've named Live OS. So it's their own software, and it enables uh, remote contribution, remote production, collaborative production from various places on the network and off the network over the WAN, and it seems to be compatible with most uh, production. Protocols such as uh, 2110, NDI, SRT, CDI, which I'm not familiar with, AES67, Dante, SDI, and HDMI. So it can uh, transport all of those different protocols and uh, <clears throat> for either live production or it, collaborative editing. So it's it's an you know I think we're seeing a uh, an era of uh, a lot of development around cloud production you know we all know that and remote production and uh, remote and collaborative uh, <clears throat> editing and putting together a show from various places so we here on office hours we do a remote collaborative um, live television production every day uh, using tools that we uh, are off the shelf like zoom and tools that we have developed ourselves using products such as Isadora and uh, Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO. Um, and there are other platforms such as and products such as LiveOS that can uh, do some of the same things and, and maybe some different things. John Preto. Uh, live is hard and, and producing scalable live solutions is hard. And this is the reason why you're starting to see some of the other vendors that had their own proprietary web WebRTC solutions now switch over to Zoom because Zoom has spent billions and billions of dollars building their infrastructure out. And now these, these other manufacturers can leverage that infrastructure because it's all about scalability and reliability. So anytime I see a proprietary solution like this, I, I don't think they compete against Zoom's infrastructure. Yeah, my first questions would be, what's their business model and how are they making money to support it? Is it an angel investor somewhere who's tossed? Because there's there's just huge amounts of money 
that you would have to do to be able to compete with a Zoom or uh, Microsoft has kind of got their thing. And uh, there are other organizations that have tremendous financial resources together. So, and I'm not saying that whoever's behind Live OS or NetOnLive don't have those kind of resources. Maybe they found those uh, people who think that this is the next big thing and are willing to risk their capital to build it out. But I'd be interesting that, you know, I'm, when I see something that's trying to play big like this, I always think, what's your financial structure behind the, the scenes? Do you have enough to, to build your audience and make it? Does it look like a viable going concern? I have no idea for this. Um, you know, competition is always good. Maybe they've come up with a feature that everybody else eventually ends up at adopting and it really helps everyone. Let's go to the next question. Coming in from Douglas Carmichael, he says, uh, John Mayer is touring with the classic uh, Gamble EX56 console, formerly from the Grateful Dead, as front of house mixer. If the vendor no longer makes or supports your product, how do you keep something that old running in a show critical position? You got to find the guy who knows how to fix it. Chris Fenwick. So, <clears throat> Douglas, Gamble only made about 100 of those. Uh, and... I get the allure of buying, like John John Muir, John Mayer, whatever his name is. He just thought, oh, I could use the Grateful Dead's mixer, and that's why he's using it. Uh, I, I got, I was buying a large console about twenty years ago, and the guy selling me the console, he goes, "If you want, I'll sell you this one." And I almost bought the the desk that um, U two toured with. Uh, doing their um, zoo tour for for two years, and it was like, really tempting, but you know what? It was an old desk. It, it was going to be harder to fix. Uh, it was really heavy. It was like four hundred pounds, um, and I, I I I wised up and I and I didn't buy it. But um, in today's day and age, a lot of us like to say, "Well, I'm an audio engineer," and, and we say that because I can push these faders around and I can, you know, mix something. Back in the old days, engineers were like really engineers. And they you would oftentimes see somebody like, you know, lifting the thing or pulling cards. And and I think that hopefully John Mayer has somebody who's a real engineer. You probably have somebody on your crew at that level who really can fix things because you are on the road. And it's not like you can just swing by Guitar Center and get a new cable you know it's it, that's not the way they play at that level so hopefully he's got a he has a, a experienced engineer on his crew uh otherwise um wait this is a 56 input console i heard that the the most recent john Mayer ch shows are just little acoustic sets maybe he just moves down to the next two channels if his mic and guitar don't sound good I don't he has know. a Mackie for that little Mackie eight channel. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe he only needs two or three channels on the thing. Um, I I wouldn't buy, ex especially something that the Grateful Dead was using. Yeah, you never know I, what's you, inside. You, you the could console. pick them up for about. I saw one online for seven thousand dollars though. Gamble fifty six. Uh, uh, yeah, here it is. Looks like this. Yeah, <laughs> it's for. It can be yours for seven thousand dollars. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, go ahead, Courtney. Oh, sorry. Um, these are old analog consoles, and I worked at a, a recording studio that just uh, closed its doors uh, last year after COVID, and we had an analog console just like that Gamble 56, EX56, 
Uh, we kept going for doing commercial recording because they liked the way it sound. It's all analog. It has uh, transformer inputs. It has, um, you know, uh, the the best op amps available in 1975 <laughs> for its mixing, <laughs> for its it, its uh, voltage controlled amplifiers. If they even used that, a lot of the times the audio would pass through the. Uh, uh, fader itself so you got to keep your faders clean these days the faders are really just uh optical encoders that just you know turn out a number into a dsp digital signal processor that controls all the mixing but uh, it takes somebody with a lot of tender loving care who knows the circuitry who's not afraid to switch out all the capacitors when they all dry out and go bad and um and to clean all those old patch panels that you had to plug all the patches in and they'd get dirty and you'd, you'd find out, why does that sound so crunchy on the guitar amp? Oh, wait, let me twist the patch panel. Oh, yeah, there. It's just a dirty connector in the patch panel. So we're getting so, pretty close to me wanting to do the switch over because we are getting some audio at NAB questions in there and we've already run uh, a good little bit past. So let's do a couple more of these, knock them out, and then uh, head over to the audio at NAB discussion. So go ahead. Uh, Courtney. Okay. Another one from Douglas Carmichael says NAB announced attendance was up 20% to 65,013 at the 2023 show. Do you think the pendulum is swinging back to in-person events? A bit. I, I, you know, it's not, remember there used to be 150,000 people at NAB. So 60,000 is bigger than last year. And, you know, obviously coming off the pandemic, nobody wanted to go to trade shows. Nobody wanted to be in a giant hall with a gazillion people breathing on you. It just wasn't part of the pandemic mindset. Uh, now that we're a bit beyond that, and most people feel like that in their life is integrated the way they want to, and they can keep safe and healthy. Um, I think it's going to swing back but it's also, you know, I was just trying to think, I, I, I was sitting here looking at Chris and Chris and I have known each other for a long time and we've known each other at trade shows, but I think we met online before we actually were at, at an NAB working together. And I'm trying to think through my, the list of my industry contacts and how many of them I've actually picked up in real life at a trade show versus how many now are from these various networky kind of things online. You know, the the Mac people who were doing Final Cut would get together. I'd know them. And then you'd run across, I'd run across Chris in real life at a trade show. I think that's where we first physically sat in the same room together. But that's the process now. It's not like the old days when you couldn't meet somebody in your industry unless you went to a trade show and talk to them face to face. And I don't know if that's ever completely coming back. So I don't know if it'll ever reach what it used to be. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, a good measure of how well it's going to come back is to see how many vendors have disappeared. Uh, I noticed by looking at the maps, and I've been attending NAV for 40 years, um, that it's a much smaller footprint this year than it has been in the past or pre-pandemic. So I think, um, and and it's very expensive to exhibit at NAB, and the booth space, since it's been going for 100 years, uh, there's seniority involved, and the vendors, the big vendors, the, uh, you know, the major camera manufacturers, the Sonys, the Panasonics, the Avids, you know, those people that have been in there and had show floor space for a number of years get priority in choosing their booth space and maintaining their position within a certain hall. The fact that they've now done this uh, kind of a fruit basket turnover by eliminating the South Hall, which had a large number of vendors in it, and adding the West Hall, 
uh, priorities space organization has all changed and those premiums that they get for uh, a good placement in the hole have all changed. And so I'm not sure the vendors are willing to pay the big bucks now that their, you know, their original uh, uh, booth space has disappeared from the show and they're looking at, well, you know, maybe we can just do an online version and, and uh, reach a lot more eyeballs that way since people aren't going to be able to find us because the the hall where we used to always exhibit is gone now. It's not included in the mix. So I think that may may pay may play a large uh, uh, <laughs> may determine whether the uh, upswing is going to happen or whether it's going to level off and move more back to the web. Chris, yeah, I thought it was interesting. You know, it used to be south floor lower. You'd walk in, boom. Black Magic. Black Magic was in the North Hall, you know, which used to be just all radio, if you remember. Courtney Absolutely. Does. And and you walk in and it's like Black Magic and Ross were right inside the door in the North Hall. And I was like, I can't even imagine how many meetings <laughs> had to take place to get these people to give up that seniority that you're talking about. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go on to the next question. We got two more to knock out, then we'll get on to our vertical today. Coming in from Sam Greenwood in Toronto, he says, What are the good or important certs to get uh, a start in the AV industry? John Preto? You know, as, as everything moves over to IP, which is good for me because I've been networking for 30 years, uh, is the Cisco uh, designations are super strong and I think they would be helpful in the AV industry. The Dante ones are pretty good because you learn a lot and they're free. So might as well knock those out. It only take about a week to to get those. Uh, what else am I forgetting, guys? There's some others. Uh, Marty? Avixa. Avixa runs uh, uh, quite a, a number of different training programs and certification programs. So when we're talking AV industry, we often think about um, uh, business meeting production or even... Uh, installation engineering. So, uh, yeah, Vixer is really good for that. They 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 talk about the technology, the how to put it together. They talk about networking. They talk about audio. They talk about video and projection and screens, uh, flat screens, uh, how to erect them, um, how to uh, configure them, and uh, and how to operate. You know, and, and do production work as well as installation. So VIX is another one. I agree, Dante, for for generalized networking as well as specific uh, Dante-oriented networking. And um, what was the other one you mentioned, uh, Pedro? Cisco. Cisco. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cisco also for networking, sure. And these things are all uh, very much a bonus for you. I will say, though, that we talk a lot about the soft skills. You know what's really going to get you hired is not your, not your certs, which are nice, but it's your ability to work on a crew or, or impress people when you walk through the door. Uh, learn how to, to, how to be a prof- how to put out a professional presence. Learn in meetings uh, the social cues of when to step up and and put your opinion in and when to hold back and let the people who are more senior to you do the talking. You know, everybody wants somebody on the crew who at the end of the shoot, the CEO comes up to you and goes, he or she, they, they were really, I enjoyed having them around when I interacted with them. If you get that kind of feedback on your crew people, you know you made a really good decision. And um, so your social skills and the soft skills of the industry, I think, are every bit as important as the 
certifications and your technical qualifications. So pay attention to that stuff. Let's go to the next question. Next from Douglas Carmichael. He says, do you think we'll see the lower level constellation switchers, one or two MEs upgraded to 4K? Courtney? Uh, we will, but they'll be new switchers. The first they just introduced at NAB this year is uh, the first start is the routing switchers are going to be first. So you have to have routing switchers to handle the stuff that's going to go into those constellations probably. So the 10 input, the 20 input, and the 40 input have all now become 12 gigab uh, gigabit input uh, SDI so that they can handle 4K uh, switching uh, now on the routing switchers. And I think Grant mentioned that they're moving 4K to the constellations next. I think I heard him say that in the video, but uh, they've been experimenting with it in-house and they're working out the bugs in that, uh, but it will be new, new pieces of hardware. You won't see it. Uh, the current hardware doesn't support that high frequency input on the SDI, so they'll have to switch it out with uh, new all new switchers that are 4K rated. All righty. So we've hit. Uh, thank you all for your patience. I know that we're uh, starting a little late on the post uh, NAB discussion of specifically audio, but we are there now. We've handled all our other questions and um, there was a lot of audio at NAB as there has been since the early days. Uh, you know, really, radio was one of the earliest technologies that NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, started with well before television was a big deal. So audio has been uh, a major focus of the National Association of Broadcasters show since day one. And there was plenty of audio. Uh, obviously, the industry is going through the continued and uh, epidemic digitization of everything having to do with audio signals. Uh, we're seeing less and less analog um, stuff. I mean, you know, there's still some microphones and stuff like that that work that way. And in fact, professional balanced audio is still a major player out there in the field, even if it's the analog versions of those. But it's clear that everything is being digitized. And I think I saw that reflected in the show uh, in the coverage that we did on Monday and Tuesday live from the show floor. There's just a lot of audio vendors and a lot of energy and excitement in that space. So uh, does anybody on the panel want to just start out with an overview of what you saw at NAB this year and what impressed you? And I'm looking kind of at you, Marty, because you're one of our audio gurus here on the show. Uh, oh, Preto, Preto raised his hand before you did, though. So I'm going to go ahead and go to John Marty first. can go first. He's the expert. I'm just a schlop. <laughs> whoever wants to go in i'm just saying for the back back end crew who might want to do a, a super source and put you on screen without a hand they're they're not quite sure what's going on yes I, chris is pointing to it now with ai we should have ai'd you in uh let's start with let's start with marty because marty you're our our longtime audio guru go for it well i'd be happy to start kick off the conversation thank you Great. bill so there was uh, there was more than I expected to see in the way of new product at NAB this year for audio production and editing. Um, first, we saw from Blackmagic uh, an, a lot of announcements, uh, and there were uh, upgrades to both the hardware and the software. There were a number of uh, interesting upgrades to DaVinci Resolve in terms of audio production, including text-based editing. Um, so, and uh, and text uh, speech to text, uh, so that you know you can take a a video clip and it would 
transcribe that to text, and then you can edit your video from there, or at least start to edit your video from there. Um, there were some uh, a bunch of announcements from companies like uh, uh, <clears throat> Sound Devices and Zaxcom and Rode uh, and Sennheiser on a, on a variety of different fronts for audio. So one of the most in interesting things is Sennheiser's new technology, which is still under development. It's in beta testing now. Uh, and this is applicable for, for larger events and larger shows where they are, they are taking what um, traditionally now is like every wireless device microphones, in-ear monitors, IFBs, comms, all of those devices which each need their own frequency and consolidating them and multiplexing them into one Ethernet equivalent broadband uh, spectrum. Uh, so like... <clears throat> We, there are a bunch of technologies where we can take multiple channels of audio and uh, convert them and put them into an Ethernet system, right? We can, we can like Dante, uh, Ravenna, um, AVB, and even NDI can also put multiple channels of audio onto the Ethernet. So uh, if for networking, well, what we don't have is a way to reliably send those over a wireless uh, platform <clears throat> between devices. So like, you know, we can do that. We can do da standard data transmission using Wi-Fi, but Wi-Fi is just not, was never designed and not suitable for uh, communicating multiple channels of audio. So that's what Sennheiser seems to be uh, uh, developing right now is, is that connection. Um, what we saw from sound devices with their new A20 uh, <clears throat> wireless system, their new 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 microphones was pretty remarkable. They uh, not only have they uh, improved the quality of the microphones and the the build of the uh, transmitters and receivers. Um, they've been able to take like 16 channels of audio, put them in a single rack unit that can be mounted uh, with modular receivers. Uh, they are software driven and they can be tuned all the way up to one and a half gigahertz, right? Which is a huge spectrum for a, for a single wireless receiver to be able to, to tune to. And with the software control from the receiver, over all of the transmitters. So from the receiver base through either the front panel control, which are video screens, uh, touch panel video screens, or from uh, laptop computer control, you can, you can control the transmitters live. You can change the audio gain. You can change uh, uh, filtering. You can change the channel. You can mute and unmute. And when you're setting up channels for each of these transmitters at the beginning of a show, or even in the middle of the show, if you find that some channels are being interfered with, you can take a block of those and instantly move them to another part of the spectrum. I mean, you can do a group of these all at once, and it takes like seconds, which is pretty remarkable. The demo that they had 
on their on the show floor and even you can see some of this on their website was pretty remarkable um so let's see uh there was also a number of upgrades to lower cost wireless microphones uh such as the Rhodes and others um these are pretty remarkable because they're small wireless transmitters and receivers and they are generally working in the 2.4 gigahertz space which brings the cost down um, and uh, some of them are capable of uh, two transmitters for a single receiver which brings the cost down even further and they're they're good for you know lower cost production where, where reliability is not uh you know front of mind or not required you you don't want i wouldn't use these on a live broadcast show but if you're doing a recordings uh, you know, for later production, um, sure, why not? Uh, so these are just some of the things that I saw. And and there were some others as well. Um, but uh, I'll let somebody else uh, uh, add some of their observations and, and maybe add some to that. Absolutely. John Prado, what did you see? Marty said it all. We've been streaming since 1997. And every time we try to do audio, it doesn't work right. So we hire guys like Marty and Greg Bullock. That's the lesson. Hire a good A1. Yeah, it can be really complicated. If you don't work in audio all the time, there are a lot of pitfalls and a lot of uh, signal-to-noise ratio killers that can sneak in your way. Courtney, your thoughts? Well, you know, I was remarking about that. We were talking about the North Hall earlier being mainly radio uh, engineering equipment, and you'd find some mixers, radio mixers, and uh, cart machines in the old days, and and tape decks, things like that. But now, since we've moved into the digital world, I think broadcasting. Remember, it is NAB stands for National Association of Broadcasters. So these are radio and television stations that are broadcasting out there. And this was this convention was designed for equipment for those specific people. Uh, the audio act, you know, acquisition and music mixing, that kind of stuff shows up more at NAM. You'll see more of the, uh, high end music capture and, and mixing consoles there. Although you will see some broadcast consoles at NAB. And I'm wondering just how many of them are left there, uh, uh, to, uh, demo those consoles that are found in broadcast booths and, in, in master control rooms and so on. Because everything is becoming computerized, especially radio stations these days. Uh, uh, you know, you can run a radio station off your laptop with no external hardware, just a connection up to the transmitter, a digital connection up to the transmitter and the right software. And you hit go with one button and that's it. It plays out all the tunes or, you know, all stored as wave files or MP3 files. All the commercials are automatically scheduled and slotted in and, it even has ways of triggering local commercials in different areas in your broadcast area. So uh, it, it's all automated and all digital these days. So analog equipment doesn't really mean much anymore. So I think there's been a consolidation in the radio broadcast era, uh, pretty much gone other than talk radio, pretty much gone in, in music radio is the, uh, the DJ that's spinning discs or playing tapes or, you know, inserting carts and playing back, uh, commercials according to his and logging those commercials because that's always an important part of broadcasting that's all handled by a computer these days um and i i was going to comment on the uh wireless is, is this, the wireless receivers which we see a lot of uh, at new things at the show this year since we moved to digital uh wireless transmission used to always be a problem 
uh, in analog days because you had to specifically, you were assigned a very small band of frequencies you could operate in. And there was always interference in those bands because they were the television broadcast bands. And so your transmitters had to be very careful and the, the front end of your receivers had to be very carefully tuned to reject spurious noise from outside that band. Well, these days with digital transmission, the receiver, as uh, Marty was mentioning, these new A20 receivers just suck in a whole broad area of bandwidth all at once uh, and store it in memory and decode the different uh, frequencies along it that the wireless transmitters are transmitting and send those data streams out into individual outputs for each channel. So that um, since they're capturing a broad uh, swath and not having to tune to a specific frequency for each transmitter, uh, they're capturing them all at once. Uh, they can do things like just change the firmware or open up licensing. That's how that uh, that A20 is scheduled. You know, it receives four, eight, or twelve or sixteen channels, one receiver. You know, a pair of uh, antennas. So it's got uh, diversity receivers. It's got two receivers in there to help get rid of the multipath uh, cancellation and receiving those bands. And it, uh, they just open up different channels based on how much you want to pay uh, on that output. And it all goes out over Ethernet, over a Dante card, or over a, a multi-pin connector to give you analog output. So it's a lot easier these days to maintain uh, with these digital receivers. So that's that's a main paradigm shift in the world of wireless microphones. Uh, the main, uh, I think the main problem we're facing today more and more and once we've transfer, transitioned into digital in the audio world is lip sync with video. And that has become a huge problem, trying to keep things in sync with our different different digital audio streams and video streams that are undergoing different compression and different paths uh, through the broadcast uh, hardware, keeping everything in sync has become a major nightmare. And once we conquer that, then then we'll know we've we've succeeded. That never affects me, Marty. Just, <laughs> I'm laughing about. That. He said two seconds after we two saw seconds it, after you saw me say it, uh, Marty. Oh, that's so true. Um, yeah, lip sync and wireless reliability. Um, even some advancements in microphones. Uh, so this morning I saw that the NAB's Product of the Year Awards list came out, and that included a, a few companies that I had not heard of before. So uh, new entries into the space, and one of them was a company called Dotterell Technologies. Uh, now, this is a company that makes a uh, came up with a very unique product. Um, I'm just trying to find the right website that I can show you. Um, so they are have a product called Konos, K-O-N-O-S. Now, this is something for field production. This is a device that looks like a shotgun microphone. Um, give me just a second here. That uh, with a with a control box. Now, this is a, a device that has 80 elements in this microphone um, with adjustable directivity and rear channels. So it is 
using real-time noise filtering to capture clear sound in challenging sonic conditions. And so, yeah, it's a little rectangular microphone. I mean, when I say little, um, it is, there's a photograph here. There you go. So somebody is hand-holding this microphone. Uh, fairly small device. And it, what it's doing is uh, it has selectable polar patterns with uh, multiple different outputs. So there is, here you go. Uh, so narrow, medium, and wide output. And it's got forward pickup pattern and surround or rear pickup pattern. So you've got primary audio and you've got uh, uh, atmospheric or ambient audio coming out of different outputs that you can then uh, mix together. So um, this was a real interesting, interesting product. Uh, another one is uh, Sennheiser's. Again, now this is all also in the lower cost um part uh, realm for wireless microphones they've had their digital e ew um, uh, product line out for about a year now they have the ewdp which is a lower cost wireless microphone system uh, looks like uh, seven hundred dollars for a transmitter receiver set with a mic with a lavalier microphone uh retail and um it's using the television spectrum, so it's not 2.4 gigahertz, and uh, <clears throat> has some interesting features to it, a little bit of uh, prompting for uh, problem resolving, so it, it gives you gives you feedback, and you can monitor and control this over, uh, port uh, over an app that's available for Android and iOS, so it, uh, it's a Bluetooth communication with the transmitter and receiver. Uh, so it gives you frequency coordination and it gives you control. Uh, so this is a real interesting thing. Uh, some other really interesting product came out of a company called Deity Microphones. Um, who have their own wireless product that are also working in uh, in the television spectrum, not 2.4. Uh, small wireless transmitters and receivers um, in the lower cost spectrum, but they're also doing um, uh, double-ended recorders. So it's a, it's a small unit that is a recorder, not a transmitter. You can put in somebody's pocket with a lavalier or a head-worn microphone, and uh, they can be moving around and not worrying about wireless spectrum. They can just be recording. Uh, they also do mixers and timecode gear and have microphones and power distribution for portable work set up. So they came up with a bunch of new things, too. Hey, Marty, I, I didn't realize it, but we had only a few questions when I looked at the top of the hour. We are now flooded with them. We've got 14 questions ahead of us, and oh, we're in the on. last 20 minutes of the show. So I want to get as many audience questions as is possible. So, Courtney, could you sneak us into the next one? I know you had something else to say. If you had a, a quick comment, make it, but then let's get to our, our audience questions. Yeah, I was just going to point out that those deity, uh, that deity pocket recorder uh, is one of the few. There's a number of other manufacturers that have had out those small pocket recorders that connect up to a lavalier and record uh, high quality uh, audio in your pocket. Um, but um, this is one of the first ones that incorporates time code. So it, in, it interfaces with their deity time code generator 
so it can jam sync to the time code so that you have a common time code reference over that pocket recorder so that you can synchronize it back to your camera later. Uh, so let's let's move on to the next question. Paul Wallace says, what is your own personal audio best of show at NAB? Preto raised his hand. First, John, what did you see? You know, Rode, Rode did a good job at this announcement where they announced these six or seven products, whatever it is. But the integration of the the wireless go product into those mixers into the into the roadcaster pro and i think also the duo made made a lot of sense for me i get lots of calls from people that have small podcasting stations and they're looking for solutions exactly like this yeah those inexpensive units i and you know chris spoke highly of them i think i run into a lot of circumstances where my little old sennheiser avx system it's not the electrosonics that i used to carry around but in the right circumstances those things can be very valuable chris I'd, I'd go one step further in the, <coughs> excuse me, road world. It'd be great if you could, sorry about that. If we, I coughed and then I watched myself on the delay cough again. I was like, wow, I really need to apologize. Um, uh, it'd be great if they had like wireless monitoring as well. Like even if like Bluetooth monitoring, Interesting. you know, I, I, I would love, I would love that. Yeah, if they can get the latency down so you're not driving yourself nuts with the uh, return. Uh, let's go on to the next question. we got so many of them here, I want to get as many as possible in. Oops, I, I caught Courtney unawares. He was, Sorry, I was uh, having to deal with my office phone ringing right in the middle of that. Uh, Dennis uh, Wojtek from New Kensington says, anyone watching last night's Alex experiment in HDR 5.1? I found it fascinating switching between the iPad and iPhone with iPods. I would prefer a lower level of rear sound. Yeah, this is one of Alex's experiments. I was hopped into that a little bit. I think many of us who were on the panel at the end paid some attention to that. It was really interesting. That is why we are so lucky. You know, we are doing this as a volunteer effort. No one is paying for it. So we get to experiment with things that we might not otherwise. Uh, and, you know, 5.1, recording in a field and doing a trade show revealed some things that I hadn't thought about. For example, at one point, I think Javier was on the left side of Alex and then as they move between two things, he moved to the right side. And the fact that they were doing 5.1 and they had Alex panned to one side and Alex panned to the other side meant that they got off axis in the stereo feed. And uh, visually, the person on the left was audio wise on the right. And it was like, hey, uh, these are things we haven't had to think about. Now that we've got 360 degree sound field, suddenly these things are another aspect of production we have to pay attention to. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, if you're going to use a stereo 5.1 mapping to go with video, you got to remember that if people are listening on headphones, they can have their headphones on backwards. They can have the left one in the right ear and the right one in the left ear, and it's going to really confuse them as what 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 happened to you, Bill? So yeah, uh, and what you I, know, what's the ambience level need to be? Do I want to have it compete? Do I need to keep the center the other thing. clear? There's Is so many that options. a at a convention, you you want to try. It's hard enough to hear the person that's talking to you uh, without having to mix in to tune out all the ambient stuff that's going on around you that you're not trying to listen to. So I think it's kind of difficult to to use in a situation like we're using it on, in a convention center. It may make more sense in something like a dramatic presentation or a film or watching a film or a stage play or something where you want to tie the positional audio to what you're seeing on screen. But if you're in a documentary situation where you're trying to focus on one person, it doesn't make much sense. 
Yeah, it was interesting. I, you know, theater and around, somebody's going to do something really exciting uh, by positioning things around you, or maybe a mystery where the the bad guy's car leaves behind you when you're in the mid. There's all sorts of possibilities for this to to be positive, uh, but I think we're in early days, and that's why it's exciting to be doing these experiments. Let's go to the next question. Okay. By the way, I just saw Renfield and in Atmos, a lot of bats flying around all over the the theater. Uh, Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana says, uh, last year at NAB, TV tech saw object-based audio like Dolby Atmos as a trend to watch. And as it has been 11 years since it was brought into theaters, it was Walt Disney's Brave is the first one. Uh, where are we with OBA, our object-based audio in the home and in the broadcast industry? Uh, and no one has said anything. Nobody's raised a hand on this one. Don't be at most. Oh, John Preto, thank you. So Douglas posted the uh, the tech write up on the sphere, the MS, the Madison Square Garden sphere here. They've got yeah. object oriented system here. It's, they've got like sixteen hundred speakers in this thing going in. It's a really good read. I don't know how to find that article again, but Douglas, maybe you can post it someplace. Uh, but right. Roscoe, you should read that article about object based audio. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, TV technology I've read for decades. That was one of the things I think I found it at NAB. And uh, I was just looking at their best of show. They have a whole list of the technologies they saw that they thought were coming trends. So worth a look to track that down. Let's go on to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Guy Cochran in Seattle, who was on the show floor. Uh, money, no object. What would provide the lowest latency to on-air talent for a real-time conversation? The delay with Unity comms bit, uh, bit us a few times. I guess, yeah, we did have sure. a couple of little issues with Unity. Uh, I, I, among others, I'd had some trouble hearing things uh, that was very weird. But, you know, listen, again, we're, this is not supported by a billionaire. <laughs> And we're all trying to, we're doing amazing work with very thin resources often. I mean, we it's not that there are no resources. There's been a lot of money tossed into this and a huge value in volunteer time from very, very smart people. But things don't always work uh, perfectly when you can't just throw money at solving problems. So it's been interesting. Uh, Marty, what are your thoughts on money, no object, on-air talent stuff? Well, you know, we are all subject to the limitations of wireless spectrum and Wi-Fi and uh, cellular connections. So, you know, yeah, if money was no object, I would put up my own cell phone tower right outside the, the conference hall and uh, and make sure that I'm the only one who knows how to use it. <laughs> all right. But, Courtney, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm just trying to keep things moving as fast as we can because we got we still have 14 questions. And this is my fault. I should have paid more attention to how many were coming in on the last part of this. Courtney, go ahead. Yeah, in the analog days, we didn't have to worry about latency because it was always instantaneous. Uh, but these days, since everything's going over the network, especially for comms, we're bringing in people remotely. And those network packets don't always travel the same path each time. Some Sometimes they fall off into the Grand Canyon somewhere and get lost before they come back out. Uh, so I was thinking maybe uh, using a VPN, a tunneling VPN as a connection between you know, our head end and the, the people in the field would eliminate some of that unknown latency that can crop up with packet loss and, and retransmission. The things that happen with HTTP transmission of audio packets might help somewhat 
cool uh, idea. Uh, we we do have the Friday show, and I wanted to make sure everybody knew about this. We're going to be doing the breakdown of the NAB coverage on Friday here on the show. So stay tuned for that. Let's go to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Jesse Mills in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Did anyone put their hands on the new little Yamaha console? If so, how was the build? Chris, did you touch it? You know what, Marty, uh, Jesse, rather, uh, I walked by it. I went, oh, there's the new Yamaha console. console. And I, you know, I think in my mind, it was like, oh, it's Yamaha. It's probably, it's probably pretty good. I didn't actually touch it. I, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should have. It's sexy, though. looks really nice. Next question. Peter Moore comes in from Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, he asks, will there be a lessons learned office hours from both NAM and NAB coverage? Well, NAB specific, yes. And it's day after tomorrow on Friday. We're doing our video breakdown tomorrow on my show. And then we're going to be Friday talking about everything we learned. Every, all the crews should be back in. So we should have a big day then. Next question. Next question comes in from uh, Andrew Lipnick in San Francisco. He says, Audinate announced Dante Connect, allowing Dante Audio to reverse the web with low latency. What do you think are the good use cases for this new format? I don't think that anybody who works with audio don't see the words low latency and go, yes, please, more, more. I want low latency down to zero milliseconds if I can possibly get it. I don't think physics will ever allow that, but I know everybody's excited about it. So, uh I, use cases probably everywhere unless it's terribly expensive. Courtney, thoughts? Yeah, I'm not sure what they're doing. There's probably QoS uh, uh, tagging of these packets to give them priority as it flies over the internet. That may be how they're achieving their low latency. Uh, I haven't laid hands on it, so don't know how good it is. Uh, we'll have to see. All right, next question. Coming in from uh, another one from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand, says way back when we had the lithograph camera obscura et al. using various photographic exposure techniques, what would be the audio equivalent or what would the audio equivalent be? Yeah, probably high dynamic range. I mean, that's, you know, that's giving us more signal to noise ratio, uh, more room for more bandwidth. And I would think that as we move into high def, uh, that'll be helpful. Uh, Courtney, real quick. Now, if you go to the Wayback, uh, you know, there was uh, parabolic discs for mic microphones listening at a distance uh, for your camera obscura. There are analog methods of sucking in audio from far away. I remember shotgun microphones that were made up of uh, 20 or 30 different aluminum tubes, each tube cut to a different link and bundled together into a long shotgun like thing and that's how shotgun microphones came about so yeah there were actually uh acoustical ways of amplifying audio and collecting it and maybe that square shotgun that uh marty just showed us will have maybe we'll find out that that is a, a path toward this let's go to the next question next question comes in from jack carson in phoenix arizona what are the panelists thoughts on the roadcaster duo uh is it a good option for field interviews john Prado. Uh, if they're next to your duo and you've got the road go twos next to it, then I think that makes sense. But walking around, it it's not going to work for that, right? Ah, Courtney. Yeah, no, and and I think they went the wrong direction. I like my Roadcaster Pro two, but I'd like more inputs, please, not less inputs. So uh, the the nice thing is they they put all that effects stuff that I never use uh, into the mic preamps in the. Uh, 
the new Roadcaster Duo. So at least you have two high quality inputs. But a lot of, you know, if you're going to go into podcasting, a lot of times you have more than one guest uh, besides yourself. So Duo is, is too few inputs. You want to have a place to bring in, you know, stereo inputs or other inputs as well uh, over the internet, your laptop, et cetera. And I'd like to see him go with more inputs, not less. Next question. Uh, from uh, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Another TV tech trend to watch for in, from 2022 was personalization of audio, as in multiple languages or 5.1 stems that the user can mix at home. Was there anything in this year's show that confirms this trend, this trend or advances this personalization of audio? I didn't see anything specifically that we covered that, that I watched in the coverage from NAB. I will say that um, multiple language uh, delivery is a pretty robust technology out there. Courtney, did you see anything or hear about anything? The DaVinci Resolve and some of the editorial packages are now boasting, of course, uh, audio to text conversion and translation. So they can now translate that automatically and put it on the timeline uh, in the, uh, for subtitles. Uh, in any of your in your projects, so that's that's one way of personalizing the audio, where you can choose a different translation because it comes in as metadata when you're watching something. You can change your closed captions to any language you want, and they can have ten or twenty languages included there. Yeah, I've I've seen the same thing. I use Simon Says a lot to do uh, listen to the audio and turn it into text for me, and I was shocked the first time I did it when I could pick not only English as the language to translate that audio conversion into, but probably thirty five other languages. Uh, probably like the English though, even at ninety nine point nine percent accuracy, that means it's going to get one out of a hundred words wrong potentially. So. You always had to go back and check manually. So I, I love this kind of automation. It really makes our lives easier, but I would not rely on it for the level of production detail that I always want to get. We'll see what happens. There's a lot of lot of effort there. Let's go to the next question. If you've ever watched real-time captioning uh, from a, a stenographer typing it in in a, a live show, you know that they make a lot more mistakes than the AI. There you go. Yeah. All right. Douglas Carmichael says, uh, uh, L-A-W-O, an old-school broadcast vendor, has announced NDI support for their home management platform. Do you see a use for NDI even in higher budget settings where 2110 is dominant? And he has a link there. Marty? So Lewo is a company that makes large audio consoles for remote production. They are often used in remote video production trucks. Uh, they're also used in broadcast studios. Um, and so they, uh, back in 2016, they started embracing support for remote production where the equipment would go on site, but the people would be elsewhere that run the equipment. And so they are um, seem to be embracing, adding support for NDI uh, for productions where ST2110 uh, equipment may not be included in the suite um, or the infrastructure for 2110 may not be uh, available or included. So, you know, for, for a lot of productions that for cost reasons or, um, or equipment availability may rely more on NDI than 2110, uh, 
this makes uh, just the number of different platforms and communications protocols that com are compatible with their equipment, you know, expanded. Absolutely excellent. Let's go to the next question. This one comes from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. He says, the new wireless mics look amazing, many with a huge range of frequency selection, assuming for worldwide use. How do they keep U.S. users away from the now illegal bands sold off in recent years? Courtney, do you have any old, old well, band radio mics? <laughs> here's how they do it. They use GPS chips. Since GPS chips have been incorporated in all phones out there, they build them into the uh, receivers. So they know your exact location, longitude and latitude, and will only unlock the legal frequencies of where you happen to be. So uh, they won't let you get outside the fence, wander outside the fence, and it's fenced in via GPS. I suppose you could cover it up with, uh, um, you know, tinfoil to try and cover up the GPS antennas. Or if you're inside, you may not be able to get a good location, but it may force you to enter your zip code or something before it unlocks the, uh, the frequencies for the audio reception. I only got snapped once. I had a UHF, uh, no, a VHF system, Sony 810s. It was pretty expensive, $1,200 or $1,500, something like that back in the old days. And when they sold off the spectrum, they sold off my part of the spectrum with it. And it drove me crazy for a while. Oh, well, times move on. Next question. Next one comes from Guy Cochran, who was at the show and is from Seattle. He says, thoughts on the AI SDI dialogue cleaner. And he has a... Uh, a link there to linkstechnic.com. That's another thing where there's just a ton of work going on. And I understand a little about this because I do uh, a lot of voiceover work. And so dialogue cleaning, particularly field dialogue, where you might be uh, recording it in difficult conditions and the, whether it's machine learning or AI-ish kind of things to look at a signal and determine what is signal and what is noise and extract one from the other seems to be coming. Uh, there's a lot of effort in these areas. And um, Courtney, your thoughts? Oh, what was the company we just had on about a week ago? Brain Fade. Um, that does the transcription, uh, the automated transcription. Descript? Descript. Oh, Descript, yeah. It has tools in it for eliminating ums and uhs and errs and uhs and, and cleaning up the dialogue. Maybe it's similar to what this uh, linkstechnic.com uh, is doing. The problem with all of that is is to remove it from the video. If you're going to cut out an um and an ah and the person's on camera, you got to cut away to something. Otherwise, you're going to see jump cuts. So I'm not sure exactly how they're doing that and keeping it in sync. That'd be yeah, we interesting have to look at. We have that problem as video editors. I know Chris has dealt with the same thing I have. You get a little short thing, you have to cut it out. You get a little jump cut. There are Nobody a little cares anymore. Yeah, twenty twenty three. There are transitions that help you get across that. But you're right. Uh, the MTV look is if everybody's but, jerking. But in all real, in all reality, yeah, just cut it out, and then I'm going to have to lather it up with some B roll anyway. So it's probably it, it's likely not a big deal. Yeah, that's the that's the tradition. Cutaway shot. You always want cutaway shots. <laughs> if they don't see it, they won't notice it. Let's go to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Tromsen, Norway. Uh, Ronnie Hofsi says, is CineMaker able to do automatic switching based on different audio input channels? If so, how many audio inputs can it handle? And can it ingest Dante audio? Uh, we didn't have anybody raise a hand on this. CineMaker did do one of the... Um, 
some one of the panels that Alex and uh, our friend uh, from Zoom, Andy Carluccio, was on. I saw a little piece of that in After Hours. And so look for those. I would imagine some of those things might end up uh, being accessible. That was something I think done by Future Media Concepts in at NAB. And sometimes that content gets out in the wild. So if you can find Andy uh, and Alex Lindsay's seminar from NAB, you'll hear some stuff about Cinemaker and it was pretty in-depth and pretty interesting. Uh, I'm going to run over a little bit. I was trying to end on time. I tried to, but I, I made such a tactical error not getting to this stuff because I saw so few questions that this is my fault and I'm going to go over so we can get as many of your questions in as possible. So pardon me for that and we'll try to keep it short. Let's get to the next question. Okay, coming in from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. He says, old timers of NAB, like me, remember the radio hall. Does the lack of such a focused area benefit, detract, or is it a non-issue for today's audio companies? You know, audio is integrated into so much of what we do that you can't really escape audio no matter what side. You know, yes, I understand there was a huge separate hall for it, but audio is now in the computer sections. It's in the video sections. It's in the dedicated audio sections and then podcasting sections. There's just audio is so important to any communication, no matter what medium you're using to capture it or transmit it, that I don't think audio is ever going away. Marty, your thoughts? Yeah, although there's no more um, radio hall, there there are sections, the different buildings, and and they were sub subdivided into broad areas of interest. So there was a uh, delivery section in the West Hall, I think it was, um, that included a lot of radio uh, companies for transmitters and studios and and and. Uh, radio production software and stuff like that. There, there was, there they were grouped. They, you could find them. Okay, John Prado, real quick. Uh, as an old, really old timer, I remember Comdex, and guess what? It's completely gone now. And so I, I, I'm a huge proponent of everything going digital. Digital first, Courtney. Yeah, with almost all radio control, radio software that does playouts of music, sports, sound, etc. Uh, going to software-based, you can try it out by just downloading a demo copy of it and running it on your computer at home to try it out. So you don't need to see it in the flesh at a uh, a convention center. So the only ones left there for the broadcast are the transmitter people. We have three more questions to touch on, and I, my apologies to the back-end crew. I know you know everybody's a volunteer back there and lots of people back there, and my goal is to try to get you out on time every day, but we're going to do our best to quickly knock these out. Next question. This one from uh, Jack Rappel in uh, Breckenridge, Colorado. Says, any evidence of a content creator shotgun mic in the sub $125 range at the show? Marty, did you see anything? Did the Deity booth have a little shotgun? They, they were doing a lot of good stuff. but Deity showed a couple of, or has a couple of shotgun microphones, but they started $300. Okay. Um, I was just looking to see if there's any what's on uh, like mono price. Um, my impression for that price point is going to be like a low end shotgun microphone that's short enough to be put on a camera, uh, but not long enough to be useful in a you know on a boom pole or handheld situation. Uh, it's just not enough money for it. Yeah. A lot of lot of technology that goes into building a good shotgun microphone that's going to be highly directional. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. 
From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, he says a new firmware update will also soon be released for the Roadcaster Pro 2, which I'm speaking to you now on, which unlocks an incredible hidden feature, the wireless microphone connectivity. That's interesting. So you think it's built in. Courtney, did you see that? Um, I haven't tried it. I haven't gotten it yet. It's still, I think it's still in beta. They haven't released. I don't think it'll come out to June. The, the problem with that is I think what they're doing there, this is just a guess because I haven't seen it yet. It only works with their, uh, uh, road go microphones, which are 2.4 gigahertz, which is the same frequency as Bluetooth and Bluetooth LE, which there is a Bluetooth receiver built into all the Roadcaster Pro 2s. Uh, so you can use audio in, and it comes in on a separate channel already on the uh, Roadcaster 2. So I think they're just retuning that uh, the Bluetooth receiver to be uh, to talk to and receive from the Road Go microphone. So I don't think it'll be uh, anything really new, other than the fact that it, it you can add one micro one wireless mic channel to your Roadcaster Pro. But I bet you anything when it comes out, you're going to lose your Bluetooth connectivity for connecting your your phone, uh, the Bluetooth was designed to bring a phone, phone caller, let's say, in to to converse with them two-way direction over Bluetooth. And I bet that's going to disappear if you use the wireless receiver for your Go, wireless Go receiver. All right, let's go to our last question. From Douglas Carmichael, he says, the Acoustic Mix Halo partnership announcement, uh, they mentioned delivering audio streams to users via 5G cellular networks and not just in-venue Wi-Fi. Wouldn't relying on a congested cellular network run the risk of audio latency issues? Marty, your thoughts? Well, when you have, you know, 5,000, 10,000 people in an arena um, configuring a Wi-Fi network to support all of those simultaneous users is nigh on impossible, I think. Uh, it would take a huge amount of infrastructure and because uh, every Wi-Fi access point radio is only capable of serving a number, a certain number of uh, simultaneous users and with only so much bandwidth to go around. Uh, on the other hand, um, 5G networks are built to handle uh, tons and tons and tons of simultaneous users. And so, you know, Unless a tour wanted to travel with all of this networking gear, which would be enormously expensive and require lots and lots of frequency coordination so that so as not to interfere with the Wi-Fi that's already in the venue that staff are using, um, utilizing the the cellular network actually makes a lot of a lot of sense from both a cost perspective and the ability to support that many users. Courtney, quick. Last comment. Yeah, um, uh, 5G, uh, especially millimeter wave 5G, is more bandwidth, so more data faster. More data faster means less audio latency. So the more you can push out, uh, the, the more data you can squeeze down that pipe faster, uh, the more people, uh, receivers you can hit with uh, less latency. So, yeah. Nice. Thank you. And JJ, you're in the panel. I haven't seen you in a long time. Good to see you. You're just hanging in there. Um Thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, Tlaloc Traversal today, 102,528 miles. That's 165,002 kilometers. If you were to take bananas and lay them end to end and to each of the persons who are uh, involved in the show today, that would be 812 billion bananas for scale from what 4.1 times around the earth. We want to thank all of the producers, all of the panelists, 
the crew and back end folks, everybody doing fabulous work every single day here. Uh, if you want to continue the conversation, it happens in after hours and we will see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching and listening. This is where we sing happy trails. Do we? we do. Till we meet again. JJ, it's so nice to see you. We don't see your appearance in the panel very much. Sneaking well, in on us. does look like you're growing antlers, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, your background. Thanks, everybody, for being here. See y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow it's video day.